This podcast contains material that is intended for mature audiences and may not be suitable for all listeners. Enjoy. Edward Seacott, Joseph Jefferson Jackson, Arnold Gandil, Charles Risberg, Oscar Felch, Claude Williams, and George Weaver are hereby accused of conspiracy to commit a confidence game. Baseball, 1919. There were no free agents, no million-dollar salaries, but there was a team no one could beat. The true story of the team they called the Black Sox and the scandal that broke the heart of a nation. Any bet against my Sox this series is a sucker bet. You can find seven men on the best club willing to throw the World Series. If you was joining, I ain't. You want me? You don't want to be stupid, do you, Joe? Now, you just sign your name right there, Joe. I made an agreement with those guys. A couple of Boy Scouts here, they made a deal. The players are in now. What are they going to do, call a cop? What you got off for, Eddie? Eddie can go three games all on his own. We don't get Eddie, we forget about it. How many games does Mr. Seacott win for us this year? 29, sir. You said if I won 30 games, there'd be a $10,000 bonus. 29 is not 30, Eddie. 29 is not 30 indeed. Welcome back to another episode of Matinee Baseball. I am your host, Ted Flint. This is brought to you by the Tailgate Society. This is season two. They can't keep us down. We're going to continue going as always. I'm joined by Jake Voss and Sean Shantes Festerman. We're discussing eight men out, like the trailer said. But before we get into it and before the drinks get flowing too quickly, here's brought to you by Dead Eye Barbecue Sauce, the best dark gum barbecue sauce in central Iowa in the Midwest. In the known universe, find them on their website at bbq.com, at Fairways and most high vs They have amazing products. They have the superfood lineup that has acaya and dragon fruit and a bunch of other fun stuff. And also their regular mango and medium heat and sweet. And go subscribe to us if this is your first time listening at Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and iHeart under the tailgate side. You'll find amazing podcasts like Culture Check, Bitter Units of Beer Podcast. Old Man Strength, an Old Man Podcast, among others. And go to our website, thetailgatesidebrought.com. Yeah, I'm excited to talk tonight about Eight Men Out. We uh, we brought our very special guest, Craig Katera. He's come on the third podcast with us now. I think every year we should just bring him back for a baseball movie. I'm pretty excited. <laughs> like, we're going to start writing out right of him soon. So, Craig, how's it going, man? Oh, uh, it's going great. Happy to be on, guys. This is going to be better than Summer Catch, which was the last movie we talked about. So I think uh, anything is going to be gravy here. Well, I don't know. Summer Catch sets the bar so high. Um, <laughs> and in retrospect, we really should record this podcast last year because this is 2020 and this happened in 1919, and we really should have like did the 100 year anniversary. And I'm kind of but the, a little disappointed scandal, in myself. The scandal was not discovered until. Uh, 1920, and it was like in September, late September of 1920, so it's the 100th year anniversary of this breaking into the news. In fact, it was in the news huge right now, 100 years ago today. <laughs> there we go. This is what Rolling this is why we brought you on. So, we always start every <laughs> podcast with, uh, with Shantez giving us like a 90 down of the movie in case someone's just listening to us to enjoy our company, and they want to get spoiled, but since Craig, you're our guest tonight, you have like 90 seconds, give or take, to spoil the shit out of Eight Men Out. So 
people know what's going on. All right. Okay. The 1919 Chicago White Sox, one of the best teams in baseball. They had won the World Series in 1917, actually. So it wasn't like they were a one-hit wonder. Uh, Owned by Charles Comiskey, who later gave his name to Comiskey Park. Uh, A great team facing an overmatched Cincinnati Reds team in the 1919 World Series. But they decided to throw the damn thing because that was just what people did back then. And we'll get into why uh, the movie and everything was a little historically inaccurate. But gambling was huge in baseball at the time. Games were thrown all the time. The Chicago White Sox players approached a bunch of gamblers, said, we'll throw the series to the Reds. Uh, And they did so. Uh, some of the biggest stars of the day, Eddie Seacott, their, their star starting pitcher, Shoeless Joe Jackson, the, the guy everybody knows from this team, but a bunch of other ones, including Chick Gandle, Eddie Collins, Sweet Risberg, uh, just whooped it. It was a best of nine. They dropped five, and uh, they got away with it for about a year until it all burst into the open. There was a trial uh, for conspiracy. All the Black Sox players walked. They did not go to jail, but then Kennesaw Mountain Landis, hired by the owners to become the first commissioner of baseball, banned them all. There were eight men out for the rest of their lives. That's the name of the movie. That's the story of the Chicago Black Sox. Sean, I don't think you'll ever be able to top that. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah that's, that's everything I've ever done to shame. Uh, that's just bad news. <laughs> so, yeah, this movie uh, came out in 1988, um, which is weird to me because like, it like, came out before like Major League and a bunch of other like baseball movies. And like it's, it takes itself very seriously. At the same time, it has like a bunch of actors in it that I don't think were quite big yet. And it's weird to me because I was looking at the I went down a wiki wormhole today. Like all these guys in there besides like uh, Mickey Rourke, Rooker and uh, the guy from Sneakers, whose name I can't think of the pitcher Eddie, are all really young. And media, they're all like ten year vets when they were World Series champs. And it's just weird that like they cast such young actors. Like, do you think that was? because they were trying to hit on, like, the youth movement, or is that just as a random thing? I'm the only one that noticed that, I guess. Sorry. I, I think there was some randomness to it. I mean, John Sayles, and, and I, I'm a big John Sayles fan. He's the director of this movie. He wrote the screenplay. He's also the guy who played Ring Lardner, the very tall, thin uh, sports reporter who talked with a, you know, kind of like this, like his jaw was wired shut. That's the guy who directed the he movie. He looked like a Bond villain. Yeah, very much so. Very <laughs> yeah, much so. There you go. And he talked like uh, he talked like Agent Smith from uh, from the Matrix movies. <laughs> um, anyway, he's you know he's a director that I've loved for a long time. The movie he did right before this was called Mate One, which was uh, it's actually a movie that's dear to my heart. No one's seen it, but uh, I'm from Southern West Virginia, and it's about the West Virginia coal mining wars in the 1920s, like the big union organization and all that kind of crap. It's just you know nothing anyone cares about except me, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a lot of these same actors were in that movie and in a lot of other movies that he's done, like uh, Gordon Clapp, who played the catcher, Ray Shaw. Uh, he was in it. The guy who later was on NYPD Blue as uh, Detective Metavoy, if anybody remembers that. Um, I, knew, I knew I recognized him from something, and I couldn't figure it out, and that makes yeah. sense now. Yep, yeah, he was he was in that and a couple of other sales movies. The pitcher, David, I, I always get his name pronounced it right. It's like David Strathairn? Strathairn? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he... he I always call him David Stadium, and it's not the same person. But that's how like, no. I, 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 can't, I can't talk. But no, I just remember so, him as the uh, as the blind guy from Sneakers, uh, and he's also in LA Confidential, and he's in a bunch of other stuff. He's a great actor. 
Yeah, um, exactly. Great actor. He's he's part of John Sayles' sort of like um, company troupe that's in all of his movies. A few of the other guys, like one of the Irish gamblers, that Sullivan guy who is like the guy fixing the World Series, he's in a bunch of his movies. So some of these old guys are just John Sayles' hands, but then like the young ones, I think Cusack because uh, they did a lot of filming around Chicago. He had been, he had gotten in a few things by then, um, but that's probably part of it. Everybody knows that Charlie Sheen actually can play baseball. So, and he's a huge baseball fan and, and has chops. If you've seen him in major league, you've seen him in other things. He actually has baseball chops. Um, That probably had something to do with it. Plus he was a big star then. So yeah, there could have been some of that looking for some star power there too, but it wouldn't shock me if, you know, John sales comes out and says, I'm doing this arty picture with a, uh, with a low budget that might be Oscar bait and Charlie Sheen says, I'll be in it. I'll help you promote it. And I'll take low money just for respectability or something. Well, it said it took him 11 years to make it, which I guess is surprising. But then after I watch it, I'm like, I'm not sure who the audience is for this movie. Does that make, does that sound bad? I'm sorry if that sounds bad. Like I enjoyed it, but like, I'm not sure how you sell this movie to make money. They didn't. <laughs> the, the budget was the budget was six million bucks or so. It made five million at the box office. Um, it, it did no money. I think this was one of those wow. deals where, um, you know, sales had gotten a lot of critical um, praise for some of his early movies. He did, his first big movie was a movie called The Return of the Secaucus Seven, that you know made its money back and got a lot of good reviews. So he was able to do several movies like this, low budget but high quality. Uh, maybe Oscar bait, maybe not. Uh, and he could attract some uh, actors. And I think studios were like, okay, we'll give him like, you know, rounding error money to make your movie and maybe something good will happen. And this one, I remember, I mean, I'm an old man, so I remember when it came out and uh, uh, it, it got a lot of good press as, Ooh, it's a, it's a great serious movie about this chapter in American history, but no one saw it. And I know I don't want to bring this up, but like this came out, Six months before Field of Dreams. If this comes out six months after Field of Dreams, it makes a lot more money, right? Oh yeah, you figure it has to because of the whole Joe Jackson thing and uh, and all that. That has to has to have boosted it, um, or it would have boosted it. But uh, yeah, no no question at all. But you know, if you're gonna you know put a gun to my head and tell me which uh, which, which uh, <laughs> shoeless Joe Jackson movie to watch, I will watch this one a hundred times out of a hundred times, and take the bullet if you make me do Field of Dreams. <laughs> yeah, I've been we, trying we, we, to convince Ted to get you to do that for for about a year now. And so you're you're never going to get me off the mic if you have me on for this thing. I'm just going to rant mean, for an hour. <laughs> it sounds like it'd be a good time to just sit here and let you go to me. Your sponsors will hate you and everything if I if I start doing that. Uh, I, I don't actually think they listen to us anymore, or they why would be our sponsors? But you know what? I'm just gonna. <laughs> But uh, it is weird to me. Like I didn't realize like this until uh, I, I looked. I did some digging on it. But like Eddie, uh, Eddie is in this, and I didn't realize he's also in Field of Dreams. Like he's the only person that's in this movie. I guess character that's in both this movie, or I guess can I say character? He's a real person. But like he's the only person that shows up in both these movies besides Shoeless Joe. He's the uh, pitcher in Field of Dreams, which I thought was kind of neat. Um, I also thought it was kind of neat that like so Michael uh, Rooker's in this movie. Oh yeah. And, we all know who he is. You know, he's in a couple of the Marvel movies and a bunch of movies. Now he's like a great character actor, but they didn't want to cast him in this movie because it did. They said he, no one knew who he was. He hadn't done anything yet. And I think that's kind of weird. When like you watch older movies and you see people that you know now that like at some point they were nobodies. Right. I mean, 
Oh, sure. Like D.B. Sweeney. Like, I bet, you see, you got to realize that Jake and Sean are young. So I bet if we ask them, they know who I'm D.B. Sweeney is. I'm 27, for reference. I, I recognized <laughs> him from a lot of things. I looked through, I had to look through his IMDb page to be like, oh, okay, yep, there, 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 and there. But I recognized him right away. So fuck off with that, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I guess even on Jake's points, looking through his IMDb, like I don't know, Ooh, I couldn't have gave you much as as a what almost thirty one year old man. Uh, it's, he, yeah, he did not look incredibly familiar to me, but like, I guess yeah, I've seen some of these things. <laughs> I just know him from the cutting edge, so maybe I'm just thinking about it too much. I guess. I'm trying to think of Not. what I would even associate him with. He's been in a bunch of stuff, and he's like one of those names. There are like three actors that always get mixed up. It's like him and a oh, he's in heart. Dermot Mulroney and we watched Hardball. Oh. He's the uh, he's the uh, the other coach, the one that gets you oh. maybe killed by being an asshole. Yeah, um, yeah, that was one. That was one of them that I was like, oh, yep, he was in there. I think there were three or four of them that I I was like, oh yeah, okay, I I'd seen him in that. Spoiler for Hardball. Sorry. Um, <laughs> oh no! I was just gonna go out and watch it. <laughs> yeah, how dare you spoil that damn near twenty-year-old movie, Ted? <laughs> so, well, it's like right. so. You know, I guess John Cusack and Charlie Sheen are obviously the two big names, but um, Cusack wasn't really even huge yet, right? He had he'd been in bit parts, and he had been in things that you know everybody in my age anyway loved Better Off Dead, but that didn't do anything that was like kind of a weird well, movie. Well, say anything kind of came out in 87, right? So he could... No, it came eight. out in 89. Oh, so I'm an idiot. Yeah, okay. it was after it, and it was the <laughs> the, man, the manager from Paint Men Out was, you know, What's-Her-Face's dad uh, and Ioni's guy's dad and uh, in Say Anything. So the two of them were went probably directly from this movie to film Say Anything, but yeah, it came out right after. So he wasn't huge yet, but he was recognizable as like a, a small role actor in a lot of things. So I guess Charlie Sheen is like the big star here, because Platoon and everything had already been out. Yeah, I yeah, kind of. I I didn't look at the dates on, uh, or like go actually go back through Sheen's IMDb, but I was kind of like surprised that he. I would have based on the role oh, that he Fernando. played and how much he was in there. I would have <laughs> guessed. <laughs> I would have guessed that it's a uh, test. Damn it! You completely threw me off because I looked up my TV. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, so as little as, like, Sheen actually did in the movie, I would have guessed it was, like, earlier than a lot of the, those other movies. But So that's interesting that he was, like, a, the star, and, yeah, he must have just uh, been in it to be in it. Yeah, he's he's coming well, right off of Young Guns, was right before this, and Wall Street was a huge movie for him. And then uh, Platoon was his big one a couple years before that. So he was, like, his oh, three yeah. probably most well-received and big, huge push movies. And then he did this, and then he did Major League. So he did Major League. Yeah, he, cr- back to he back. crushed. Oh God, yeah. Looking at this, yeah, he absolutely <laughs> crushed like that three-year, four-year period. Well, well, like I was looking at the trivia, and like me and Jerry were discussing the IMDb trivia before it came on, and like they said that he and Cusack were only reason they were cast because they could play baseball, and that's the reason they were cast, which is just incredibly lucky casting if that's like the main reason, like because any yeah. other actor could have been could have been cast just to play baseball. Right. Yeah, that's the thing about Sheen. It's funny. He could play baseball. He's really good. You know, again, like we said, he 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 could pitch. He saw him in in major league. He actually had good form. 
Um, one of the few times any pitcher in any baseball movie has ever had good form. He didn't have a lot of baseball stuff to do in this one. He had a few running catches and stuff because he was playing the left fielder um, who, uh, you know, Hap Flesh. Uh, Hap Wikipedia says he's a center fielder. Oh, I center fielder, sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, well, he was like, you know, fairly minor here, and he was uh, part of the fix, but he was also a dumb rube. And a lot of the misinformation that made it into this movie, well, well, that made it into the book that this movie was based on, and there was a ton of misinformation in this, uh, all came from interviews from the guy that Charlie Sheen played. He died in 1956, and just before he died, he gave a bunch of interviews to the author of the, uh, the book, Eight Men Out, and he was just full of shit. Like he, he, he really made up a bunch of stories that didn't hold up, but no one really checked them. And uh, that's how they made it into the book. And that's how the movie kind of got all messed up as far as historical accuracy goes. I kind of wondered about how accurate it actually was watching it. And like, if it was uh, like, if the, if it was just uh, embellishing things for movie purposes or yeah, stories like you're talking about people making shit up or what, but. Well, he's right. It was it was a Charlie Sheen character, and it was also a uh, Buck Wilder. What was it? What what is Buck Weaver? Buck Weaver. Buck, Apparently, Buck he's Weaver. also was like one of, was one of the main people that got interviewed for the book, and which is probably why he comes off the best in the movie slash book. But uh, mm-hmm. which um, yeah. and also thinking about like, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say I was gonna start just like listing off all these errors, but there's a ton of them. Oh. Well, Go for it. We we have all night. Yeah, I'm here for some it. Some of them, yeah, some of them that are in the movie are just like, um, I had down. I'm just like, man, like, because they do like that whole game one where like nobody wants to look bad, sort of thing, and then it turns into like just blatant underhand, like Charlie Sheen's character blatantly underhand catches a ball and lets it roll out of his glove, and I'm just like, <laughs> you're gonna tell me nobody around just went. Hey, something's up. <laughs> it's like I understand it's embellishing it for movie's sake, but it's just like, and you know, and I can't personally speak to what 1919 baseball looked like because I'm sure there was some really ugly plays by some not athletic dudes. <laughs> All names Stumpy and stuff. Yeah, but good lord, some of the things that they put in the movie as errors and ways to throw the game, I'm just like. There's got to be ways to make that better. Uh, I mean, at least like it wasn't blatantly intentional. So the the big thing that I think people need to understand about both this movie and what baseball was like at this time was it was crooked as hell. And it had been crooked as hell for almost 20 years. Gamblers were all over baseball. And, you know, this gets portrayed as like baseball's loss of innocence. It's big scandal, but this was just like one of many, not, and there were like other world series that were thrown and there were tons of games and biggest stars of the day, guys like Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker were involved in, in these gambling things. And it was just sort of common knowledge. It was part of the game and uh, it didn't get reported on a lot, but everybody within the game knew it. And uh, so the the first thing you got to know is, Everyone knew even before the series started that the fix was probably in. Um, the movie portrays it as they, they win the pennant by beating the St. Louis Browns in that opening scene when they're playing. And then right after that, they all start talking about, hey, maybe we should fix this thing. No, no, that, the plot had started like two weeks before because they were probably going to win the pennant. They had like a four-game lead over the Indians or whoever. They were probably going to win the pennant. And uh, they started started the plan. 
Second, the gamblers did not approach them and say, you guys should think about throwing the World Series. The players actually sought out and found gamblers and tried to interest them in it. Um, they, the players are, you know, sort of acted like they're, they're in the movie, like, oh, hey, this is a chance for us to do something. Maybe we should. I don't know. Bullshit. They all went to the actual gamblers and figured this out. Um, so and that's just, it's like well-documented. So there's a friend of mine, his name is, uh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. It's Jacob Pomerickey. He works for the society. He actually runs the Society for American Baseball Research, like Sabre. And uh, his special area of expertise is the, the Black Sox scandal. He's like written a book on it and everything else. And uh, so this is like well-documented stuff. There's interviews, there's newspaper stories. There's all kinds of stuff that people have that talk about this. Um, the, the huge one that, that kicks off the entire scandal is that the owner, Charles Comiskey, he's cheap. He's, he's underpaying his players. He's giving them flat champagne at the beginning. Not true. Not true. The White Sox were the actually highest paid team in baseball in 1919. Oh, come on. Don't <laughs> ruin all the fun for me. A hundred percent. Their opening day payroll that year, 88,461, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that was 11,500 higher than the Reds, the National League Championship Reds. And uh, the National League back then was always making more money than the American League because it was better established. But these guys were paid well. Uh, Eddie Seacott was like one of the best player, uh, paid players in the league. Um, the bit about, oh, I didn't get my bonus because I only won 29 games. Wrong. There is no evidence whatsoever that he had a 10,000 bonus. And there's probably no chance that he did because his salary that year was 5,000. And it was unheard of in baseball for anyone to have bonuses that exceeded their salary back then. But even if he did have a bonus to get him, uh, you know, a bunch of money, if he won 30 games, Comiskey didn't bench him. No one benched him for that. He had like three bites at the apple at the end of the season to win his 30th game, but he just pitched shitty and he didn't get it. It It's completely made up in the book and completely carried over to the movie. So this all started as like in the whole movie and the whole book just starts on complete wrong stuff. And, And I get why it did kind of, at least in the movie, John Sayles, you know, look, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter or whatever. I, I'm a pretty liberal dude, right? I come at things from a, a pretty bleeding heart commie uh, standpoint. So um, I, I know one when I see one, and I know John Sayles based on all of his other movies and everything. He's kind of the same way. And so whenever he's trying to tell a story, he is looking for who the bad guy is, and it's going to be the rich dude, and who the good guys are, it's going to be the working dudes. And, hey, I, I feel you, man. I got you. I got you on this. This is wrong here. <laughs> this is absolutely wrong. Oh, yeah, it's for sure. It's framed 100%, you know, as, you know, it's getting back at shitty ownership and, you know, and even, like, I think I had it down and just, like, it's funny the way they frame it. And they put it, you know, in the movie that it is at the end when they're doing the trial. He's offering $10,000 in reward for evidence of the cheating when in the movie it basically kind of starts of they can lock up this whole throwing the series thing because he wouldn't pay a $10,000 bonus. Yeah. It's just too perfect. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, those are weird numbers to line up, you know? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's just, uh, so yeah, it's very much a anti owners thing, which I mean, I would get if you want to make that story about it right now. (laughs) I mean, I read a whole article today about how, you know, Francisco Lindor is having his contract fight, and he goes, "You guys know MLB just signed a three billion dollar TV deal, right?" Like, <laughs> yeah. 
a hundred years later, it's a very different story. But uh, but yeah, years later, they're the trash cans went back in time. Yeah. It is funny though. It's like you know the the owners back then had way more leverage over the players, and it generally was a crappier situation for them. Obviously, they didn't you know comparing even when you adjust for inflation, the salaries were just a thousand times lower than they are now. Right. Um, but the White Sox, you know, for the day anyway, they were paid pretty well. No, no one there was hurting compared to like you know if 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 it's if their lot sucked, it you know it sucked for the other fifteen teams in baseball then. Yeah, relative to the rest of the yeah the other salaries for players, they were paid well or whatever. That mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was kind of the part of what I like watching it. Um, I guess I I didn't really pick out specifically the uh, like Comiskey being a cheap ass or whatever as one of the things that I thought might have been uh, false. But that was th- those were some of the things that like watching it. I'm like, okay, so how much of this are you just you know blowing smoke to make me? be interested or want this to happen or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big part of it. You gotta, you gotta have motivation. I kept thinking, if Kaminsky's such a raging asshole, why did they name the park after him? That's what I kept thinking. Like, if he's such a terrible person or whatever. Like, like, he was still the owner when they built it. Yeah. Yeah, It was Kaminsky Field until U.S. Cellular propped up all their money, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. What's it well, called now? It's like has an arrow pointing down, right? It has like an arrow pointing it's a down. Downward rate. Guaranteed rate. Guaranteed rate field. I always want to say Maybe. downward something because it's a freaking arrow pointing down. So it's, like... <laughs> it's fine. I think people I know in Chicago they still call it New Comiskey because you know it was the second Comiskey part. But yeah. people call it New Comiskey or people call it the Cell or whatever from the years when it was U.S. Cellular. Can we, I mean, I, I mean, I know a, I know a Sox fan that calls it the G spot, so whatever. <laughs> oh, another complete bit of utter bullcrap in the movie is uh, there's a scene, you know, when it's in the middle of the World Series, and you know the the White Sox actually won a game because you know they're not getting their money from the gamblers. They're a little upset. Maybe we're going to Welsh on the gamblers and, uh, and and try to play this thing, and they win one. Uh, it's the, the game where Seacott, you know, pitches really well. And uh, the next pitcher up is Lefty Williams. Lefty Williams is the other big pitcher there who is uh, in on the fix. Uh, he's thinking he's going to actually pitch really well because he was inspired by Seacott pitching well in that game. Uh, and then like the, the, the tough dude comes up to him and says, you know, we're going to kill your wife who, by the way, the woman who plays the wife was later in the Michael Myers movie. So I married an ax murderer, but she only had a very small role in that. <laughs> Just letting you know, Nancy Travis. And uh, um, I thought for sure you were just going, going down like a Halloween trail there for a second. I'm like, oh okay. <laughs> like when you said Michael Myers, I got very confused. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, the whole scene where the guy comes up and says, "We're going to kill your wife if you don't throw this game." That's that's absolutely fabricated. And um, not just that. Oh, we couldn't find evidence for it. The guy who wrote the book, uh, Elliot Asmanoff, or whatever his name was. Um, he put that in his book on purpose because his lawyers told him to. And and the reason was, this is a fun story. No one knows about this. Uh, well, you could, you know about it if you read about it, but um, his lawyers, when he's writing this book in the early sixties, there were other people that were researching books about the black Sox scandal. And it was like kind of a race to see who was going to get the big book about the black Sox scandal out because all these black Sox players were dying off. And so people were getting interviews of them. They were finally talking to the press and uh, three or four other writers were trying to get books to press. 
And uh, the lawyers tell the writer of Eight Men Out that uh, you need to insert this fake character and give him a name. And it was Harry F., I think it was. Because if someone copied or plagiarized your research or your book and then put it in their book and said, oh, I found this to myself, we would know that that's fake because you made it up. It's sort of like how map makers will put a fake little city in somewhere so they know if someone copies their map, they'll know. <laughs> it's like the red dye test. We put this fake thing in there. So because some lawyer said that the writer of the book should invent this character who made a death threat to Lefty Williams' wife, it made it into the movie like 30 years later. It's just kind of incredible to me. Just I, I, I don't think this movie comes out in the internet age. There's no way it does because everybody's like hearing about it being made and they're like, oh, that's bullshit and that's wrong. And then, oh, wait, how did you do that? But yeah, there's just all kinds of stuff like that in here. If this movie, this movie doesn't get made now. It's like a, it's an eight episode Netflix series where eight, each episode's a game in the world built yeah. around that. Bro. Yeah, and you think two hours like, of this movie was tedious? Oh my god. No, okay, the movie <laughs> wasn't tedious. I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I said that wrong when I fell asleep. It just like the spot. <laughs> After they get him really tired, I I didn't start this movie until nine thirty at night. All right, it was a long night, and like the part where like they like they spend like eight minutes just showing newspaper headlines will put anyone down. (laughs) I don't give a shit how good like lighting you have. Like they're like there's a spot after they lose game eight where it's like we're gonna show newspaper headlines for eight solid minutes, and good luck. You're not gonna make it. I'm sorry. So, yeah, it, it definitely was not a kinetically um, cut movie from the editing standpoint. Yeah, it was it was definitely there. Like, again, just like I did like I, I may know this and I'm not, I'm not like note people as uh, Sean and uh, Jake know how they literally filmed the courtroom scene when they get when they get off. I mean, sorry, phrasing when they when they get acquitted and. It's like the end of a championship baseball game. Like they're all on each other's shoulders. They like the camera's swooping around, right? Like they're gonna like. It felt like the end of like a big game, and I thought that was. I think that was like purposely done, right? That had to be purposely done. Oh, I think so. Yeah, you figured. Well, so in real life, the story doesn't really have like a big ending. Like there's no end point to it because, you know, they threw the World Series in October of 1919. All these guys played the 1920 season, except for well, like Chick Gandle didn't play in the 1920 season, but that was just because he had a contract dispute. Everybody else, Shoeless Joe, Eddie Seacott, all these guys, they all played in 1920. And it wasn't until late in the 1920 season when people started spilling the beans and it became a thing. So, you know, you didn't have this dramatic moment after the series. And then it just sort of lingered around for a year as a, a minor bubbling thing. And then it became a big scandal for like a month. And there was kind of a court case, but no one was really into it. They weren't going to go after the gamblers because the gamblers were too powerful. They kind of went after the players, but no one wanted to, to do anything to them. So the case was half-assed. And then just, you know, they all got acquitted, petered out, and then everybody just went their separate ways, and then they got suspended. There's no Hollywood ending to the real life of this. So you have to have sort of like a, the big moment, or, you know, you can't have the big game in this one. So you got to have the big court case. That's like the next best thing. If you ever have a movie, you got the big game, you got the big court case, and then I don't know what you have after that. You got like nothing. But those are the two big, big things at the end of movies. And eh, they made up one for this. So it's like in like 40, 50 years when they make the movie about Raphael Parma. Paul Marrow in front of the Supreme Court saying that he definitively did not take steroids. And then just like somehow somebody has him on his shoulders after that. And there's like, yeah, man, they said you didn't do it. And it's just one and, thing. Yeah. Uh, I did think it was very relevant to now. And I may, I may have mentioned this today when I was rewatching this, 
on my lunch break, um, that they basically hire this dude to be the new commissioner or whatever. They don't actually say that in the movie. But they cut him, just like sweep it underneath the rug. They're like, this mm-hmm. way we're, we're fine. And you can't That's help real. but like see how, how like the Astros didn't get punished at all. And you just kind of like think back, like, is that the same shit going on now? Or like, so, like, let's just move on and just get past this and we'll be fine. Like, it's, fu- it's funny you mentioned that because um, I wrote a big thing about this like about a year ago at NBC. It's uh, nothing has changed as far as how baseball approaches scandals since the Black Sox scandal. That was the blueprint. Um, and how they did portray that in the movie was pretty accurate. Um, it was all about damage control. The owners knew that they had a big scandal on their hands. They needed someone respectable to come and, and act like they were cleaning it all up. So they hired Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who they knew already, by the way, because Kennesaw Mountain Landis a few years earlier was the judge when the federal league, the upstart league um, that tried to compete with the National League and the American League, uh, started playing. They played for three seasons went out of business. They sued baseball, organized baseball for antitrust violations, said it was restraint of trade. Um, Kennesaw Mountain Landis was the judge, and he um, gave some good rulings for the National League American League owners. Um, They thanked him for that. That's what gave us the antitrust exemption in baseball, by the way. Um, And a few years later, when they needed somebody, they go back to Kennesaw because they know he's going to protect baseball, and uh, they gave him the job, and, and so he did, did kind of cover. It was like, I'm respectable. We've got this handled. It was like scandal abatement by press release. And that's the model that Major League Baseball still takes to this day. I'm investigating this, says Rob Manfred. We're going to get to the bottom of this. And then he does it. He does, issues a report, says this is terrible, but now it's over and we're moving on. And 90% of the baseball reporters say, okay, because they work for Major League Baseball or they work for ESPN or somebody. And everybody just sort of sweeps it under the rug and nothing happens. It's the same model a hundred years later. It's happened here. It happened with steroids, happened with cocaine in the 1980s. It happened with, um, there were some, you know, alcohol scandals and some minor gambling scandals in the sixties and the fifties. This happens all the time. There is nothing different from how Bud Selig and Rob Manford handle scandals than what Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis did. So, so speaking on the why, all right. So I made, I made, I went to their Wikipedia pages of all the players and this was like a good spot to like to lead into this spot. But before we get into like my little game I had here, so apparently Lefty Williams <laughs> became a drunk and in his Wikipedia page it was reported that when he's playing like in the so called called outlaw leagues, I don't know what the hell that is, that in between innings he was drinking too much and it made the batters nervous because he was drunk and he kept hitting them. <laughs> That's relatable. Uh, That's relatable. Yeah. So, so, so the game oh, I mean, won the level of respect there. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> if you can keep it close yeah. enough that you're still actually hitting guys while you're getting <laughs> blacked and, out. And the, and the quote is from the newspaper is it was reported that in between the in between any nips made him an imit- intimidating pitcher to the batters. So. Oh, God. <laughs> so I want uh, so all these guys banned from baseball, and I want I'm going to go through and I I I took the time to write down all their jobs afterwards, and we're going to rank we're going to like not rank but we're going to pick which one of these you would most want to if you can no longer make money playing professional baseball what you'd most like what one you'd like to do so cool Chickalel he became a plumber mm-hmm. contracts Eddie uh, Kikati 
he uh, went and worked at Ford, and then he retired, and then he became a strawberry farmer. Happy Fish, he opened a grocery store, as well as a number of drinking establishments. Uh, <laughs> Shoeless Joe Jackson opened up Joe Jackson's liquor store. Uh, Fred McMillan, he became a Los Angeles City deputy marshal. He's the bench warmer that just got paid because he's on the shitter. Um, Swede Reisenberg, I think he's the shortstop. Mm-hmm. He became a uh, yep. he, uh, he he owned a tavern and lumber business. I'm catching a theme here. Um, Buck Weaver literally has nothing on his Wikipedia page except he tried to clear his name for 60 years. So I guess that paid? Question mark. Hold on. I guess. Making <laughs> Did Swede own a tavern he, and also he, a lumber business? He eventually, I wrote, I, wrote, I wrote in my notes, it, I wrote my notes, <laughs> it says he eventually ran a tavern and lumber business. So I imagine they're separate at the same time. <laughs> but, I mean, if you want to go get drunk and cut your money to be down, made there, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, back and, in the day, then, you could have them together, probably, right? I don't know. I know yeah, plenty I of people most... right now that I could sell a couple beers to and then sell them two by fours. <laughs> it would not be that hard. Yeah, like all of them. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, and then Lefty Williams, after he uh, got t- done being a drunk pitcher who hit people, he became a garden nursery business person. Mm. So, any of those jobs sound appealing? At all? I mean, yes. all the all the bar and liquor store owners. That sounds like a good yeah. As I say, I just open game. like some bars and a restaurant. I'd, I'd be down with that. Yeah, it sounds like um, not that uh, not that we didn't already know this, but uh, I, it sounds like maybe players in the early 1900s until you know maybe like 1940, 1950, maybe had a bit of a drinking problem. Hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just throwing no, that out there. Really so, not. And so I guess, I mean, I don't know. I could drink whiskey and grow some flowers or tomatoes or whatever you want. That, that wouldn't be too bad. And, I just like how, like, or, numerous guys in their wiki had uh, had outlaw baseball career. Like And, like, that just sounds like a comic book one of my kids draws, outlaw baseball. Outlaw baseball. That'd be really good. So, so those were basically what, just the independent leagues. I was going to say, is that what they showed, uh, like, Shoeless Joe playing at the end, basically, was a yep. yeah. outlaw baseball when, league or whatever? When when Shoeless Joe had a golf ball-sized piece of chaw in his mouth at the end of that movie? <laughs> yeah. He had the, he had half of the fucking pack of leaves in his mouth. Yeah, so they're, they're you know, we have independent league now, like, you know, the Atlantic League and all these other leagues. Um, and, and those existed then, too. They're just not affiliated leagues. And uh, they they always wanted to like, – so for most of this time when these guys were still playing in, like, the 20s and the 30s, um, it was still very common for minor leagues to be sort of not affiliated with major league teams, but they would sell players, right? So if you were the Oakland Oaks of the Pacific Coast League and you signed Joe DiMaggio when he was 18 – I think I got that team wrong, but something like that happened. San Francisco Seals, one of them. Um, you know, you, you had to get Major League Baseball to send a scout your way and, and sign your player, and then you'd get money and you'd let them go play in the majors. Um, so there was an incentive not to piss off Major League Baseball, even if you weren't affiliated with them and it wasn't like the farm system like we have now. So these outlaw leagues, they, they, they still wanted to sell players to Major League Baseball, but they were far, far less related to them than the the main minor league teams were and so players like black Sox guys 
they would, you know, go under assumed names and they would play there and they would play. And if someone said, Hey, there's a, there's a scout coming to town from the New York Yankees, uh, take the weekend off, please. We don't want anybody to see that you're here. Um, that was pretty common. Did they like okay. pay him to take the weekend off? Like, like, well, probably they... because like the reason you sign him is you tell everybody in town, Hey, we got shoeless Joe Jackson playing here. You should come see this great big former big league star here. And then, they, you know, make a ton of money because Shoeless Joe Jackson is playing there illegally. And then, oh, wait, somebody's coming. You know, again, pre-internet, you can do that. Right, yeah, it's all just local newspapers and stuff like that. And, you know. And the guy that owns the baseball team to... probably runs a newspaper. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's pretty easy to skirt around a lot of that stuff, I'm sure. There um, were no laws until, like, 1995 anywhere, basically. <laughs> <laughs> And even then, you know, <laughs> before nine eleven, we could get away with a lot. <laughs> can we can we talk about how? Because I've had enough whiskey now that they like made shoeless Joe Jackson like one step above Simple Jack from Tropic Thunder. <laughs> he was a Rube. He was like Rube Waddell. He was, yeah. yeah, just a. I think we took that a bit far, I think. I mean, he was not known to be a smart guy and everything, but that whole, like, I'm sitting in the dugout, like, or that I'm looking at the candle with one eye closed, and then I'm sitting in the dugout, and I'm not going to play. Yeah, he was like, they they almost made him, like, beyond just being, like, not super smart, they almost made him, like, autistic or something. I was like, that's, like, pretty pretty. It was a choice. It was a choice. It's the 80s, I guess. Like, you know, I mean... I mean, so I go back this and came out just before Asian. Rain Man. This came out like a year before Rain Man, so they're like, okay, <laughs> we're going to Oscar <laughs> by that much. <laughs> you can see it's it's kind of funny when you look at all the other movies that came out before and after this one. You could you could almost see every missed shot that this movie had. Right, it it missed its shot at Field of Dreams popularity. It missed its shot at Major Leagues, um, you know, overall baseball betterness. It missed its shot at Rain Man. It missed its shot at everything. You know, it wasn't like any of the big prestige movies that came out. It's like you were you were this close on every single metric, and you just blew it every single time. And it just it like it just amazes me how like they made him just a dumbass in this movie, and then they make him smart talking. You know, Ray Liotta in Field of Dreams, like like this, just talking shit, like, and then like yeah, I, I mean. I, I don't. I never got that. I'm not going to get into all my Field of Dreams issues here. And I will say that usually when people have issues with Field of Dreams, one of the first things they mention is Ray Liotta. I don't even care about that. Like if if that happened and it was otherwise a good movie, I wouldn't care. I'd let it go. You know, people have license. You can you can make Shoeless Joe Jackson instead of a South Carolina redneck. You can turn him into like a New Jersey you know good fella. Um, I don't care if the movie's good, but yeah, that did stick out a little bit. You know. And just because I'm rewatching it right now, the uh, the the catcher in this movie, he's really aggressive with his signs. Like he like, like almost annoyed me in the movie. I was like, like damn, dude. He's he's so weird. So Gordon Clapp, right? The actor who played the catcher, Gordon Clapp. Um, again, most people, if they know him, know him from NYPD Blue, where he played Detective Metavoy, and he was kind of like the. Two of the four people know of that show. Okay. Funny yeah. Show, but they've seen that show. Sorry, I didn't want to know. Wasn't mean, mean. Jesus Christ. Mid nineties. I just seen it. You aren't. Uh huh. <laughs> well, yeah, it was the first show that like actually showed butts on network TV, so it was kind of big at the time. And um, he played like sort of like the second banana detective, not like even not even the second. He was like the fourth banana detective, 
and he was kind of like a lovable, you know, he did his job okay, but if anyone was going to mess up on, on a case, it was going to be him. So he just kind of played this befuddled character or whatever. And then in the other things I've seen him in, like in Mate Wan and the other John Sales movies, he, he does a good job, but I have no idea what he was going for here. It's like, I think he probably didn't understand baseball and he didn't know this story very well. And the director just told him, Gordon, here's what I need you to do. You're, you're, you're not throwing the, the World Series, but everybody else is, and you're mad about it. Go with it. And then he just decided mad was his operative word, and all he did in every scene was be mad. Oh, my God. I, I, they, they're, they're showing the scene where they dropped the body from an airplane. Like, what was that? Like, did that <laughs> tell me that happened, or, like, the director was just like the I don't director know about that one. We're in a biplane and just drop it. Like, it makes no sense, right? That like, was – so that was one of my biggest notes in the entire movie. Just like, okay, so you ran your your best starter in the league to run out there, and he pitched like shit in game one. Your team maybe played okay, but clearly lost to They never should have lost. And then game two, somebody flew a plane and dropped Was that the game two? Yeah, game two dropped an effigy on the field in a White Sox Like, is this just a clear, hey man, the fix is in? Like, the mob's here to just murder you if you don't do this? See, I, I think uh, that is just like the fans being angry. Like, that was just like the equivalent of someone standing up at a game now and saying, you suck, Seacott, or whatever. And. So I'm just I, I saw that because I watched it like you know I've seen this movie a bunch of times but like I watched it again like tonight before we started talking, and all I can think is, you know Shane Bieber, for the for the Indians totally woofed it on Tuesday night in Game One against the Yankees, and then on, talk about that. Sorry, <laughs> that's, but like that's, that's rude. Ma- that's <laughs> rude. Why would you why, why would you do that to me? We were having such a good time. I live in Ohio, man. I could I could talk crap about the Indians all I want. Um, yeah, it cost me money, that bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, so just imagine in game two on Wednesday, imagine that someone rents a plane and throws a, like a, an effigy of Shane Bieber and he lands in the middle of, of Progressive Field. That would be like a terrorism case. Like, yeah, that'd like, be like a fucking Homeland death threat or something. Homeland Security I, would be I, like raiding houses. I'm pretty sure he would houses. have preferred that happen as opposed to what happened actually in game two. So. They- Cut in last night, uh, and granted, this year is obviously way different, um, but they cut in last night to show the dude that was banging a drum outside of the gate <laughs> while two were getting arrested inside the stadium by cops that broke And by in. last night, he means last Wednesday, since this will be, we'll be dropping this on Tuesday, but... uh. Um, yeah. Uh, it, the end of the Indian season. It's pretty easy to look up. Uh, they uh, they got swept by the Yankees. If you haven't seen it, it's awful. But if someone flew a plane over the field and dropped like a fake body down in the form of one of the players, it would be the biggest story going, and people would end up in Guantanamo. It would be amazing. Really and here good. it's like, and here it's just like, oh, this was what happened in 1919. This is just this like a really good tracking shot. In this hallway, we haven't even talked about that. Sorry to interrupt you guys. I'm watching the movie, <laughs> but they had a really good. Oh, no, that, shot. that shot was actually no. That was really that was. Re- you're right. That was really good. I liked that a lot. 
It uh, it took me a little bit to figure out what they were doing, but once I figured it figured it out, I was like, oh yeah, this is actually pretty pretty good. I like it. it yeah, in the hotel room, you mean? In the hotel? Yes. Lobby, like in the, the hallway, yeah, in the doors? hallways. Yeah, in and out. Yeah. To yeah, each it, it's kind of like watching you know, like Daredevil season one when he was beating the crap out of everybody and and all the little doors and stuff like that. Except there were no fights in this one. <laughs> well, kind of, like, I got a little upset there, you know, in the dugout. Um, a little anger, but, a little uh, anger. So. I had a question and I completely forgot it because my brain got me up on Daredevil now and it's gone now. <laughs> um, we always ask like, it, would you? We can't really say remake or reboot, but like, if you could, if you could reboot this now, like, do you think it would, would do better now in 2020? Or I guess I like 22 by time. I, I think it'd have to be a completely different movie. Um, I think you could make and. I will say we've been kind of like slagging on this movie and I've been slagging on this movie a lot, but um, it's a, it's a beautifully shot movie. Like think about how many bad, horrible looking movies from the eighties exist where like they got all the period stuff wrong and the production values are shitty and whatever. This is like a good looking movie. Um, They got all the, you know, it's like the natural in a lot of ways and that they got all the period stuff, right. Um, You know, the actors for the most part, except for Gordon Clapp did a pretty good job. Um, so it's a well-made movie. It's enjoyable to watch on a certain level if you're not like into a big action thing. If you're just like wanting to see a slow burn, it kind of works pretty well. Um, but that said, I don't think you can make this movie again. I think if you wanted to make this movie, you had to tell you have to tell the real story. And I think there's a a much better story to be told of the real story. And whereas in John Sayles making a movie in 1988, his thing is all going to be these rich greedy bastards are screwing these players. I think the real story here that would resonate with people better is there's this giant conspiracy of silence in which we all accept corruption until the moment people find out about it. And then once they find out about it, we're going to make people scapegoats and we're going to pretend that the problem is solved. That's a better story that they didn't tell. And I think that it's one that everybody can sort of relate to because everybody knows about things that happen at their work, for example, where only the last guy who got caught doing it is the only one that ever gets in trouble, but a bunch of other people did it. And there's this all kinds of stuff like that. that They could have done with the real facts of the black Sox. Um, that would be a good movie, but you know, it's never going to get made. Well, they won a world series in Oh five. Apparently no, no one remembers it, but white Sox. Nobody fans. remembers it. ESPN <laughs> even leaves it off all their, all their graphics and everything. It's fine though. Sorry. We're, we're, <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Who's a Cleveland fan, and he hates us for being Cub fans. <laughs> hey, by the way, um, as as we're taping this right now, I, since we do have a Cleveland fan on the on the podcast, I, I did want to mention where I am on the where I am on the on the East Coast. Um, it's almost midnight, and it's almost October second, and it's my mom's seventy um, second birthday, and my mom is a very old lady who's lived in this world a very very long time. The the Cleveland Indians won their last World Series nine days after she was born. Sorry, but I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> oh God! Oh man, that's, you know that <laughs> that really that sets me in the way you, of you, you, you got so speechless should, uh, right now. That's amazing, Craig. I should remind you. Uh, I don't know if I told you this on one of the last podcasts we did, but like I was actually recording a podcast during that World Series on Game Seven because <laughs> I thought the game was over and I got roped into producing a podcast. And I'll send you the link, and it got real angry there towards the end. But anyways, oh, um, the Cubs Indians game? 
Yeah, because I, like, I ended oh, yeah. uh, in the rain delay of me just cussing out the world because I thought for sure it was over. But anyway, <laughs> it's we're not. One, it's I one like of Sean my too much. It is one of my favorite, like, po- like not like take out even like the context of the fact that I'm a Cubs fan. Just listening to that podcast is really great because it, it's it's just such a roller coaster of like Ted producing and like chiming in and getting pissed and yeah, it's it's really good. And then just silence because everyone thought that I hurt myself like physically, but uh. <laughs> I, I love the Indians. I hope they. I, I, I want to Indians World Series more. Almost more. I want a Cubs World Series. I, I love. Buddy, Indians, I got bad like, news. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. Like maybe twenty-four like, year old Corey Kluber will come back. But I just unless there's a time machine. Twenty twenty is the year of all the asshole teams winning. So I'm first year the Yankees, Cardinals, Astros, fucking Marlins. Dodgers, like just all the teams that have like are crap, like no fun fans are gonna make make the playoffs or continue on the playoffs. Like, and I'm sorry, I, I know Craig doesn't like Cubs fans, so he's probably room for the Marlins. It's fine. Uh, they're, okay. they're okay. I have friends that are Cubs fans. They're fine. I'm so happy, and it's just it's been a little bit unfortunate that it's happened while we're recording this that the Padres have done some home run pimping. Fernando Tatis Jr. Well, the game's not over yet, apparently. Oh, dude, Spawn. no, this game, the fucking Cardinals will not go away. It's ridiculous. Cardinals are like herpes, man. I'm a Cubs fan. What's this, nine runs, 11 runs? Of the Cubs yeah, what is scoring runs? What? What is that? What is this? So we're, as, we're as we're sitting now. here, as we're sitting here recording this right now, in, the Padres Cardinals game is not over yet. It's eleven and nine in the top of the ninth inning. They have used seventeen pitchers in this game. It started at six o'clock central. It's a ten twenty three central right now. Right. And I'm learning for the first time in like four years, Trevor Rosenthal. Trevor Rosenthal is still a pitcher <laughs> in the MLB. <laughs> And he's just hanging sliders. Yeah, he's not doing great. I did find oh, out God. in the. Uh, oh. What happened? Well, they got one. Okay. Oh, uh, anyways, I did like how like the uh, the big gambler in this movie, uh, Rothstein or whatever that was his name. I don't know Apparently, like he's in like a bunch of like not him himself, but like the characters in like a bunch of movies, which I thought was kind of surprising. And he died. Horribly, and I oh my god! I went to his Wikipedia page. I'm gonna find him. Apparently, he got shot by somebody, and they uh they tried getting him to like give up who like who killed him, and he basically the cops that their mother killed them, killed him or some shit. Like your mother did it or some shit. He's not he gonna dying. not gonna snitch to the end. <laughs> so yeah, Arnold Arnold Rothstein was a, a pretty big figure. Um, if you've read the book The Great Gatsby. Um, he's mentioned in that as like a character, like he, uh, Gatsby gets his money by being tied up with Arnold Rothstein somehow. And, and they mentioned that he was part of the, the Chicago White Sox throwing the world series. And, you know, this is a book written, you know, 93 years ago. No, I can't find it, but like, I thought that was just kind of like a badass Cause like, not, I mean, I'm not bad. towards a terrible person. Good way at the time sure to that. fit in on just like, a way to make money, you know, that was a fixed, almost insider training level of making money. I like um, that he didn't even care, right? It's like, um, yeah. he's like, eh, I guess I'll do this, whatever. Like, he didn't want to do it. So, yeah, all right, here it is. 
On his deathbed, Rothstein refused to identify his killer, answering the police inquiries as, you stick to your trade, I'll stick to mine, and my mother did it. <laughs> so. Wow. Didn't give a fuck. <laughs> so. Um, I, had, I don't know. I always got get, I have questions in my head, and then I lose them. And then that's that's what happens when we're talking about the Cardinals and the Indians and everything else. Um, is there anything else like Jake getting your notebook? You always have a notebook. So you didn't have any notes tonight. No, nah, man. I, I really, I really didn't. Uh, we touched on like basically every like for the beginning of the movie when they were showing the people and showing who they were. I was just like the DiCaprio meme of pointing at the TV. Like I know that guy. Because <laughs> um, there were like six guys that I recognized, right? Um, and then like, yeah, I mean, we touched on it, but the they made it so damn obvious that they were throwing. Like, you can inadvertently like mess up and have an error, not just like actually okay, drop yeah. the ball. I, I, I was about this shit. So like, I looked at I, this is on the Wicked page, and I'm sure Craig knows. This, like, you want to know why they said Shoeless Joe Jackson was guilty of throwing the game? Like throwing the series, you want to know like what evidence they used for him because it wasn't he hit, he hit the ball, he had like he had an amazing batting average and like he didn't have any errors. I'll give you guys three guesses. Unless you guys don't know the answer, did you, any of you guys know the answer to what they said was proof that he threw the game? Did any of you three know the answer? Well, I, I know actually why he got banned and what they based it on, but it might not be the same. Thing. Okay, so you can't guess. Okay. Jake yeah, and Sean. Um, I I don't. I guess. No idea. I don't have a... And I'm sure Craig was something I'm wrong, but it was because he allowed an unusual amount of triples from balls that were hit to his area of the field. Well, that's what they cite. That's what they cite as the evidence. Yeah. Because when, when you argue with someone about Shoeless Joe in the Hall of Fame, they're like, well, he actually hit like, you know, 370 or something in the World Series and everything. And so people will say, right. oh, no, he gave up triples. But I, I never have patience for arguments about Shoeless Joe in the Hall of Fame because what really ended up happening was he admitted to the grand jury that he took money well, to the damn world. But series. in the movie, they said he couldn't read. Well, he couldn't read, but he 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 testified. He goes into a grand jury, and there's there's like testimony of it, like it's out there. Like he went in, they said, "Did you take money from gamblers to sell the World Series?" He said, "Yeah." <laughs> I mean, that's open and shut. He's like Pete Rose, like all the people that argue about about Shoeless Joe, like, you should let him in because he actually tried really hard in the World Series. It's like, no, he, he admitted it. He, he actually yeah, admitted there's, it. Yeah, there's not much wiggle room when you go in and actually verbally admit to a grand jury that you took money. Yeah, so it's like, I I mean, I feel bad, but you know what? He's dead. Who cares? And he admitted he did it. It's sort of like when Pete Rose is like, well, this, that, and the other. It's like you literally signed a paper that said that, you know, there's enough well, evidence against you. And that's where, I guess, in the movie, I think it's, um, I don't remember who it is they use, but it's before they do the Shoeless Joe, the the Joe Jackson, like, grand jury confession or whatever, of just where they do the waiver of immunity. But there's somebody else that goes, you you know, after he signs off those rights, and he just goes, what's immunity? What does that mean? I'm just like, oh, it was that was Eddie, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's just like, shouldn't you, shouldn't you probably throw that on like Joe Jackson, who you've talked about, like the first one that they show like full bore sign slide that 
waiver of immunity contract in front of sign, him. Sign, sign your mark. He X's out. <laughs> yeah, just because he doesn't know how to read or write, is so he just writes an X. And like, and just like, so that was a weird one to me. And just like, why don't you make that the point of it? And just like, yeah, maybe he didn't know what he was saying or doing or what he was wavering at the time and you know and that's fair whatever um but it was a strange thing that yeah that they had somebody else do sign a paper they just go oh well you sign this and then you tell us your story and you're fine I'm just I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that maybe it's just the fact that I'm from Iowa and like I always thought Shoeless Joe Jackson was innocent because of Field of Dreams. That Craig's out here just being like, No, no, he's dirty. He he did the <laughs> deed was, and I'm man. having a hard time I'm having a hard time I'm I'm having a hard time with this right now. Like it's just it's hurting me like on the inside. Because I always <sighs> thought like and this this movie kinda like confirmed like, Well, yeah, you know, Field of Dreams, eight men out. He's just he was innocent. He he didn't do shit. And now See, just... it's it's these kind of truth bombs that make me hate Field of Dreams, and then make everybody hate me for hating Field of Dreams. But I, I have I have to I have a mission I have to fulfill. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, mean, pre- I, I appreciate their, the truth. That's so. Um, it's in there for I mean, it's literally five seconds where somebody walks in and there's like, "Hey, Joe, we, you know, here's this uh, where I have to bring this to you," and he's just like, "Set it on the dresser." So, do you think that the guy that bed. wrote the book that this is based on did that on purpose to like protect his legacy? I guess to like kind of like. See, that's always been out there though, because I don't think it hid any information. It's like always been findable public information, um, and I I think there were people even before the movie came out that were like oh, well aware that you know Joe Jackson probably you know, that that he admitted to throwing it and whatever. Um, but I think John Sayles had a story he wanted to tell, and right. it it doesn't. It, it, the other one's Buck Weaver, who is, and we haven't talked about him much, but that's the John Cusack character. Which, right. yeah, I want to talk about him because, like, because like it's obvious that like he's be the the good protagonist guy. in it. Yeah, but I mean, why, why, don't you, why don't you crush our Buck Weaver dreams, Craig? I don't have anything. There. I don't have too much to crush. They <laughs> actually were fairly accurate. Um, they made up the stuff with him talking to all the kids and everything. That was just a device to make him look good. But um, Weaver was aware of the fix. He didn't tell anybody about the fix. Um, he, there's no evidence at all that he, that anyone could ever find from either research or whatever, that he was like wrestling with the idea of what to do, or he was angry or he was trying really hard because that was the right thing to do. He was just there and he was like any of the other guys in the team. Yeah, they're, my, my teammates are probably fixing it. I, I have all this information about it, but I'm not going to say anything. Um, probably nowhere near as bad as the other guys, but was bad enough in that he had he was the one with the most amount of information that could have broke this open, and then he didn't want to talk. And that's what got him busted because they found it out from other means. Like if the guy, from other means, if the cops come to you and like, hey, talk to us. Uh, if we find out somewhere else, you're not going to get your immunity deal, and then you shut up, and they find it out. Well, you're screwed, and that's what happened to Buck Weaver. Yeah, I find I find a few things. So I enjoyed the like little kid, like uh, the little kids being in the movie is like the device that they were. I I, I like I recognized it, and I thought it was kind of it it, it fit well for me. But uh, the I just find it curious that like yeah, obviously he's portrayed in the movie as like the good guy and like doing the right thing and like not ratting on his teammates, but also not throwing the game. But like 
if you know all of that, to me, you're either going to take money or and and help, or you're going to like tell people. I guess is the thing to me. So like, I find it really curious that somehow he's supposed to be the good guy because he didn't apparently try and actively throw the World Series, but. He was kind of screwed in some ways, and it, they they hit on this a little bit in the movie. There were cliques, right, on the team. There was, like, the Eddie Collins clique. He was, like, the college boy, big star of the team. Right. And they were all, you know, the, the ginger ale drinking good guys. And then there were the, you know, the tough guys who were all, you know, the, the boys. He's one of the boys. He's he's in with us. And uh, Buck Weaver was one of the boys. He was he was friends with, you know, Seacott and, and, and with Chick Gandle and, and all those other guys. And so he was part of the crew that was dirty and wasn't friends enough with the crew that was clean to where he could be on either side cleanly. And so he sort of fell in with his buddies, even though he didn't really do anything wrong. And um, so I could see him being a victim. I think they sort of overplayed it a little bit about how much of a victim he was. He was passive, but you know, if he had hung out and drank ginger ale with Eddie Collins, he probably would have been clean and probably would have still been playing. But, you know, this group or that group, it was all clicky. And uh, that stuff still happens in baseball teams. Clubhouses are really clicky. You're like with the pitchers, you're with the hitters, you're with the Latin guys, you're with whoever. And things always work out that way. And uh, I think he just sort of fell in between uh, not having the right friends. Well, that's like the, like he asked Eddie Collins, like, why didn't you come sooner? And he's just like, well, I didn't, I didn't assume it would be that bad. You know, and I think of all that shit, like you said, like he just didn't want to be an asshole, right? Or like you yeah. said, like, that's wrong. You know what I mean? But like, you said a lot more polite than I did. You want to fuck up shit, you know? Which is kind of like when we talk about steroids and shit, like, why didn't anyone, like, why didn't anyone, like, rat them out? It's because it's clubhouse shit, right? Yeah, pretty you much. You don't do it. it. Very similar thing, actually. And if you were, if you were, if you were a guy who did steroids and you were with all the other steroid dudes, if you're, you know, Kitseko and all of your, your big dudes in Texas or whatever, um, you're in one camp, and if you're if you're you know Mr. Clean, you're another. But there are probably guys that are in that gray area in between. And our great grandkids are going to watch about the uh, Houston Astros hitting trash cans in six years. <laughs> Who's when the they Buck Weaver it. of the Houston Astros? Cranky. I don't like one like Carlos Correa. I don't like make light of like 2020, but like the Astros just 2020 just saved their asses. In the worst oh, yeah. way. Oh, yeah. It would have been the biggest story all year. And it's just got swept away. I'm now watching them win, I think, game six. Seven. All right. All right. Let's hope that the uh, man Phil never watches this game movie because you know he'll, like, make the World Series go back to nine games to make money, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so, sorry, uh, like, uneducated baseball person here. What was the uh, – so they talked about it being a best of nine. Did it, like, change around that time at some point or – it had changed like twice. Like it started as a seven and then it in 1903 when the first world series came. And then I think it went to a nine, maybe like 1910, 12, somewhere in there. And it was nine for several years. And then they cut it back. I think not long after 1919, they cut it back to seven for good, but it sort of fluctuated a little bit. Okay. Cause I, I, I did catch, there was, there was a line in there, something about uh, they're lucky. It's, it go, it's gotta go not, or it's best, whatever they said, something yeah. about a, being nine or, or there had been seven before five that. Or whatever the hell it was. Yeah. They hadn't really decided. It was sort of like they, they renegotiated it every few years, but well, hey, let's do nine this year, you know? And 
Um, so the character saying that would be well aware that we had one that was best of seven a couple of years earlier and uh, that nine was not necessarily etched in stone. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I just, yeah, I wasn't aware, so. All right. I also love this, like, I know we're getting a little long. I love the fact that, like, I noticed, like, that they were leaving the uh, baseball uh, mitts on the field. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I assumed that they were just sharing them. But then I, like, did some research on that, and apparently they, they just left them there. And it took until the 1950s for them to stop because balls <laughs> yeah, were hitting for like, them. For, like, 30 more years. They played with gloves on the field. <laughs> I assumed that was they were sharing them, but no, they literally were too lazy to take them to the dugout with them. And can you imagine trying to like play a baseball? Like, all right, I get the outfield, but did they leave them at second base. Like, did they leave them? <laughs> like, like, where? Where they put them? Yeah. Did they well, put it right mean, next to the bag, maybe, or something? I have no idea. I was going to say, I would think the outfield would be worse, like, at least at, like, first and – well, second would – yeah, second would be bad, I guess. But first and third Can you imagine, fine, like, but... your career ends because you blow an ACL because you, you tripped over that lazy-ass <laughs> left fielder's glove from the first <laughs> – like, like, Yeah, that's the way I, it kind of read of what I looked at is just, like, you know, everybody just – wherever they were, they took off their glove and threw it down, and they just left it on the field, like – not even like, you know, the guys at second would go just leave their glove on the base or something. They just threw it in the in the dirt and just like, the, yep, the, that, that glove's there now. And do the errors count that, if it hits the glove? Like, is it, is it the close yeah. ball? <laughs> How do you score that? I mean, we're only a couple hundred years removed from people literally throwing buckets of shit out their front window onto the street. So it's like we've, we've had a lot of work to do. It went to the society. 1950s, and it took them finding players for them to pick the gloves up and take them to the dugout. Like, <laughs> I mean, Dave, Dave Parker was smoking. Dave Parker was smoking cigarettes in the in the dugout in the 70s. Man, I mean, there's a lot of right. a lot of things you just have to negotiate. We're six months removed from, did you know that a full calendar year ago, we let pitchers try and hit baseballs? <laughs> That's the dumbest shit on the planet. Yeah, well. Were you there in the American League? Well, and now you there in the National League, you finally caught up. Yeah, it's like you're – after five years of saying Kyle Schwarber's going to be a great DH, he has two fucking home runs this year or some shit as a DH, whatever the fucking number is. I don't, don't want to talk about it. Coast can't score runs. By the time you hear this, they'll be swept by the Marlins, and the Marlins are winning the World Series this year because they never lose a playoff series, apparently, <laughs> which is a weird stat. So, hey, two for two, bud. Um, <laughs> did you see, all right, I'm going to leave you on this, and we're going to we're, we're gonna this poll on Twitter. I'm sure you saw it yesterday or whatever. Um, it was about the Twins, and uh, maybe you didn't, but would you rather as your favorite team, I know you're a Braves fan, I believe you won today? Or whatever. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, they won, they won today. Um, would you rather 18 straight years like the Twins and 18, 18 straight losses or not make the playoffs for 18 years as a fan? What would you pick? I'd, I'd take the playoff losses just because 
I'm a regular season guy. Really? And if and if you're well, if you're the regular season, I just enjoy it. And so if you're making the playoffs 18 years in a row, I got like six months every year of pretty good baseball. And I get pissed in October, but I've always gotten pissed in October. And then you're over it by Thanksgiving, so it's okay. There's nothing that screams Braves fan more than that answer. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you got to get conditioned to it. Like, look, oh, if you're a Braves fan, especially, Lord. yeah, if you're a Braves fan like I am, like I started watching the Braves in the 80s. And uh, at least you got you, all those division camp banner, banners. <laughs> you, you have you have a choice, though, right? Your choice is you can just get angry as hell or you can be like, OK, I have found acceptance of the fact that they're going to lose in the playoffs or lose in the World Series. And uh, I, I picked the former, and I just had to rationalize it. But I've always been a guy who just like sort of likes regular season baseball, so I'm good with it. That's what, kind of like Jake had this Twitter poll like earlier this week, where it was like, "Would you rather Cub fan or whatever? Like, just get swept now?" I didn't. Or yeah, I didn't. The, I didn't even. I didn't even put it in the context of the Cubs. It was just like, would you rather lose in this uh, wild card round or like make it till or no? Would, would you Would you rather lose a close series in the divisional series or make it to the championship series and just get like shellacked, just get swept by you know like the Dodgers, for example, in the NL? I think most most people answered it with. I think damn near everybody answered they'd rather make it to the championship series, and I think that's probably the right answer. But that's not fun either. Like just getting your ass beat. No, I still remember when uh, uh, Ramirez hit 18 home runs against the Cubs and the Dodgers in the CS. So no, I'd rather just get lose now, get over with. I can concentrate on Iowa State losing a heartbreaker. I still have nightmares of the 2007 ALCS. Up three one on the Red Sox, and they blow that. I mean, that's not getting shellacked, but it's yeah. That might that shellacked. might almost be worse because you're you have, yeah you have your you have your hopes up that you should you know you're gonna win and then <laughs> to give up the up three one losing the series. I don't I don't know this, that feeling. This may, yeah, this may shock you. Um, Cleveland very <laughs> bad at blowing playoff leads in mm. any sport. Ugh. All right. Um, does anyone have any? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll go to Sean first. She said you had some notes. Do you have any notes in your notebook left before we uh, let Craig go home? Um, I think I'm pretty well clear out. The only other thing I had left uh, was that the uh, that last beer when doing the whole players are telling stories after they're all acquitted sort of thing. The beer they hand Charlie Sheen while he's, sta- while he's sitting on a bar is the worst poured draft beer of all time. <laughs> yes. Three quarters um, foam. Yes. But yeah, that was the only one. That was the only was other there, note when I When did Prohibition end? It was 1920. Like, are they actually when, are they able to have it, beer? It began, in, it began in 1920 and ended in 32 or 33. So this was like just before prohibition started. Which is why I'm guessing a lot of these guys became liquor runners. Outlaw <laughs> <laughs> base outlaw baseball players. There's there's a there's a there's a TV show right there. You're uh you're a baseball player by day, you're a boot by night, you're an outlaw baseball player. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> Find the net <laughs> It's like it's like Deuce of Hazard about the racism. <laughs> <laughs> God. I told is you it was, though? 
Yeah. No regret. <laughs> is it All though? Right, I'm pretty Greg sure there's a line in the movie that is like, uh, he, like Shoeless Joe is the best player in the white baseball league. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, he's, he's the best player I've ever seen. And then like the usher, like the the guy who's like cleaning up in the stadium. The only like, white player in the movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's the usher. It, he's he's like one step above the coach uh, from Rudy, I guess. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like. <laughs> Craig, he's like, I gotta go off this thing. Eric, Craig, do you have anything you want? No, I'm just gonna say, um, uh, if 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 you liked the look of this movie and you uh, you know were like eh, whatever, but you you like period piece movies that you know deal with historical stuff, see the the movie that John Seals made before this first. Go see Mate Wan. You can't, it's hard to find, but you can I'm gonna, find, I'm, like, gonna, I'm, gonna I'm gonna track it out. Like it's one of those movies that like Disney bought and it's not streaming anymore because we we had to watch uh, Angels in the Outfit off of YouTube a few months ago. Yeah. This like, one just it just never went anywhere, so um, it was out of print for years. But I think Criterion Collection has it now. So uh, if, if you're interested in like labor and coal mining and 1920s and like rednecks shooting Union Busters and stuff, it's a great movie for that. I'm gonna see this movie streaming anywhere. I'm looking up right now. Put on my list. It, it's not streaming at all. I think the only place you can get it is Criterion Collection DVD. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually curious. Like, I'm curious about this movie, to be honest with you, because I, I really didn't. I actually enjoyed this more than I thought I might, and it, it does. It didn't strike me as like watching it that it was made in '88. So, well, I just know made on a lot. On Amazon. Hometown, so. All right, found it on Amazon. What we, the over under is 9.95 for the DVD. It's what do you guys got? Dollars for the Blu-ray, twenty-two ninety-nine for the uh, DVD. You can buy it from Walmart right now. Oh, going the other other way. So we did. We all right. Just to be clear, we, we like this movie. You should probably watch this movie. It's very relevant now to the the Astros and I guess Red Sox, which I don't really. I didn't really follow much. The Red Sox cheated. I think they just hired a bunch of Astro players that all cheated. Um, and yeah. And no, it, it was good. In... I, I think like we we spend a decent amount of time like Craig talking talking about the inaccuracies and stuff, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that the movie wasn't it was a good movie. It it really was. The, though it, it's not yeah it, it's not like action packed or anything like that. But uh, to sit down for a couple hours and watch watch a movie about the Black Sox scandal, it was good. Hopefully, it was again before you guys. <laughs> So I'm a, we're going to listen to the best journey song of all time. And we're going to say everyone good night. Craig, appreciate it. We'll see you next year when we, uh, when we find another random movie to watch and I'll pick That's something really off the wall, off the wall next time. Like there's a, so many terrible, like baseball movies that Sean and like just petrified of me picking. Like it's, I'm going to find a really juicy one for next year. So talk to you soon. Works for me. Thanks for having me on guys. Yeah. Thanks Craig. All right. Thanks, Craig.